So this morning, I am going to share, um, you actually don't have to turn anywhere because we're going to be in a couple different verses, and so I have most of the slides up there, but I want to share about our greatest need this Christmas season. It's a Christmas message. Uh, one of my favorite things to do at Christmas time is to ask my youth group kids what they want for Christmas. It's just really fun to get a good gauge on what they think that they need or the, what they really want. The Kirk kids, where are they at? They're always interesting to ask. Um, They've been known to ask for mandarin oranges, a large block of cheddar cheese, and I heard um, salt and vinegar chips were on the list this year. Um, That's some easy shopping. I think that can be handled. But uh, I had one young gentleman say that he needed batteries uh, for his Wii remote because his mother and his sister always steal his AA batteries was a request. Um, Look at who's laughing really hard. You might be able to figure out who that is. Um, But you really start to gauge wants versus needs. When I was a little kid, my grandmother would always buy me um, a Sunday outfit for Christmas. And that was the worst. (laughs) Because my grandmother picked an outfit that fit what my grandfather would wear to church. (laughs) And I really didn't want to match him, let alone dress up for church. (laughs) So it was a joyous Christmas around 12 when they just started handing us cash and said, you can go buy what you want to buy yourself. I know that for Christmas, I better not walk in the house on Christmas morning with a gift for my wife of something that's a household item or that would be a need. I better stay. <laughs> Too bad Rini is not here to hear that, Dara. <laughs> um, to avoid the vacuum cleaners and the frying pans, but to um, cover more of a want. But it's funny how those things change as you get older. Literally this year, I asked for a pair of pants that I can wear to church. (laughs) And I want the things that I need. I will take the socks and the underwear that I used to despise. (laughs) Um, And you start to appreciate those things. But as I was thinking about that and this Christmas season and everything that's going on, I really started to wonder, what is the big deal with Christmas? Why in the world does Home Depot start rolling out Christmas decorations the week after Halloween? (laughs) Why do some of you sinners start to listen to Christmas music well before Thanksgiving? (laughs) Why do we debate whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie or not a Christmas movie? It's not. (laughs) And more than the excitement of, you know, and why do we get, I guess, so stressed out and so worried about buying the perfect gift and we're anxious and the hustle and bustle in December is known as one of the busiest months of the entire year. And I resolved that what Christmas is really about, beyond just being together as a family, beyond just decorating a Christmas tree, beyond the gift giving and the celebration um, of Christmas, what it really about is about our greatest need. That we are a people of great need, and Christmas is the answer to that greatest need. And if I were to ask you right now, we would get a different list of what you would think your greatest needs are. Some may say that their greatest need right now is a financial need. You know, the bank account's low, they're running, they want to buy gifts for certain family members and they're trying to count their pennies to see how that's going to work out, or maybe they have bills that are left unpaid, and some would answer that their greatest need is a financial need, while others may enjoy a larger bank account and a bigger safety net, and so therefore their need is not as great as the others. Some may say to those that are struggling with health or have health-related issues or serious illnesses or have family members that are struggling, they would say that their greatest need this Christmas is just um, better health, a healing or a miraculous healing here, or just to um, be better in the health world. 
in, in the area of health. Some would say that maybe their jobs are stressful and work is stressful and there's just too much stress and anxiety and fear and worry going on in their life and the best thing this Christmas and their biggest need is just to have more peace and to have less stress and to feel less burdened by the things of the world. And not to minimize any of those things and not to say that some of those things aren't very real needs that many of us face. I could probably put myself on a list of those things. But that doesn't answer the question of our greatest need. And in fact, our greatest need is something that we all share in common. Whether you have zero dollars in the bank account or a million dollars in the bank account, we share this in common. Whether you're 30 years old in perfect health and you don't understand um, what it's like to be sick or ill compared to those that might be struggling and battling long-term illness, and they have battled illness for years, our basic need is still the same. Whether you're stressed out over work and you're fearful of things going on at home and your family situation is a mess or you have the perfect little family and you're happy and you're peaceful and all of that, you still have the same basic need, which answers the que- well, that begs the question, what is that need? And that need is this. That need is that our sin has separated us from God. It doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account, whether you have a million dollars or zero, your sin has still separated you from God. And that we as a people have walked away from God, that we have stepped away from God, that we have chosen to disobey his commandments, his laws, and the things that he has set forth, and we've walked away, and we've chosen our own path, and our sin has separated us from God, that we are alienated from God. John 3.19 says this. The scriptures confirm it. 3.19 says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were once children that walked in darkness, that we had transgressed, that we had trespassed against the Lord, that we had broken what he has said forth. The God who supplies our oxygen and that keeps us firm upon this ground upon which we stand, we've walked away from him and our sin has separated us from him. And sin doesn't discriminate, sin doesn't care if you're healthy, happy, stress-free, or wealthy. We all wrestle and deal with it. And so our greatest need and what Christmas is really about is about the birth of our Savior, it's about the birth of Christ and Christ entering into our need and to bridge the gap between man and God. There's a quote um, that if you could put it up on the slide, Joseph, that D.A. Carson said this. It said, go ahead, go back, you were there. There we go. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, if he thought we needed money, he would have sent an economist. If he thought we just needed entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If he thought what we needed was political stability, he would have sent a politician. If it was wealth, he would have sent us a doctor. But God perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and so he sent us a savior. We see it once again in Isaiah chapter 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. Christ is the light of the world. And the darkness of the world is our sin and our folly and our wickedness. And Jesus came to be a light into that darkness. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at a story um, that at first, you might think, what does this have to do with Christmas? But I promise you, um, we will get there. 
It's from 2 Kings chapter 16, and you can put that up there. And before we read it, there's just a little explanation that the people of Israel, they wanted kings. God wanted to lead them. They begged for a king, and so God gave them a king. And this is how it pretty much went in the Old Testament, very simple, simplified. That if the king was good, and they honored God, and they followed God, and they kept his commandments, the nation of Israel was blessed. If they disobeyed God and they walked away from God and they started to worship other idols and they um, started to worship with the nations around them and the king was corrupt, the nation suffered from that. Walk with God, blessing of God, walk away from God, experience some of the turmoil and frustration of that. And so just keep that in mind as we read um, the first four verses here. In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Remelah, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. So Ahaz was the king. He was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire. Following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out, before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places on the hilltops and and under every spreading tree. The man sacrificed his own son. I'll let you deduct what type of king he was. Is that Ahaz simply decided to walk away from God. It says that he started to worship the gods and the idols of those that dwelt in the land of Israel before God drove them out that he started to make sacrifices and started to bow down to other gods and to foreign gods instead of worshiping the one true God. And so Ahaz was walking in darkness. Ahaz was in sin. And so Ahaz finds himself in a little bit of a predicament. As we read on, it says, Then Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remali, king of Israel, they marched up to fight against Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz but they could not overpower him, right? So two nations are now coming and they're coming to wage war on Israel. They're coming to overtake Israel. And it says, at that time, Rezin, king of Aram, recovered Elath for Aram by driving out the men of Judah. Edomites then moved into Elath and have lived there to this day. And so Ahaz finds himself in a predicament, in a situation where he is being threatened. He's about to lose his nation. He's about to lose his... um, king, kingship, he's about to lose his throne, and so he feels under attack, and so he's got to do something about this. And so in verse 7, it says, Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tilgath-Pilasher, king of Assyria. So Ahaz approaches the king of Assyria and says, I am your servant and vessel. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the and of the king of Israel who are attacking me. And it says that Ahaz took silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it. He reported its inhabitants to Ker and put resin to death. What's going on here? Ahaz finds himself in a predicament that his own sin, that his own wickedness, that his own decisions have led not only to his own trouble and his own demise, but now his nation is about to be overthrown and overtaken. And so Ahaz has a decision to make. What am I going to do to save my job, my title, and my nation? What am I going to look to to rescue me, to be my deliverer, to be my source, to get me out of this bind that I am in? 
It says that Ahaz approached the king of Assyria, one of his known enemies, takes gold and silver that belonged in the temple of the Lord that was given to the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria to say, you know what, and to beg and to plead for his own salvation and his own deliverance. So what does this have to do with Christmas? And what does this have to do, um, and where is God and all of this? And what does God think of all of this? And so also in the Old Testament, we have the prophets. And in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah was the prophet at the time that Ahaz was king. And so he shows up, and he has something to say about this. And Isaiah approaches Ahaz in verse 3 and says this. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to Washerman's Field. So he sent, God is sending Isaiah to Ahaz and saying, you know what, go speak to him, and this is what I want you to tell him. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. And we'll stop there for a second. And so what's God saying to Ahaz? He's saying, keep calm, be still, stand upon my word, trust me, and the two nations that are threatening you will be like smoldering logs that will be snuffed out by morning. And so Ahaz has a choice at this moment, and we could stop and do a whole sermon right there, is that in those moments of decisions when the, when the enemy is attacking or things are attacking or things become overwhelming and the darkness is just surrounding us, we really have a choice. We can stand upon the word of God. We can be calm and still and trust that he will deliver us and that he will rescue us and that his word word will remain true. Or we can take things into our own hands. And so God tells Ahaz, he's like, listen, if you stand upon my word and you'll stand upon what I have spoken to you, my promise to you is that these two nations that are threatening you, they'll be snuffed out like smoldering logs. But that wasn't enough for Ahaz, and if we skip down to verse 10, it says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, right? So again, he sends Isaiah again and says, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. And so now God is telling Ahaz, listen, you've ignored me, you've walked away from me, and I really should probably just in our own rational minds would let him go. You wanna see how, where that path takes you? You wanna see where that road takes you? Go on. See where it goes. But God shows up to Ahaz again and says this, ask for anything and I'll show it to you to prove that I am with you, to prove that I am able to deliver you and that I am your savior and that I am still with you. Think about that. How many of us would like God to ask us that, you know? How many of you got your question lined up right now, you know? God says, you know what? Go ahead, Dan, ask your sign, ask of anything. That's what God is saying to Ahaz. Ask anything from the highest height to the lowest low. There's nothing off the table. If you ask, I will do it for you to show that I am with you, to show that I am your savior, that I am your rescuer, and that I am able to do this, and that you can look to me for your salvation. And he puts Ahaz to the test. But it says in verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to test. And so Ahaz squirms around it by being spiritual and acting like, oh, I don't want to burden God. I don't want to, you know, bother God with my request. But in reality, Ahaz just wanted to do what he wanted to do. He trusted in himself. He had his own plan of salvation. He was going to give it to the king of Assyria and he was going to put his trust in man and in the king of Assyria to deliver him. Which leads me to my first point. Is that if Christ is not the thing that you are looking to for your salvation... Where you do look 
and where you do place your trust and where you do look for salvation will not only, one, not save you, but two, it will often rule over you and it will be the thing that lords over you and dominates your life. What do I mean by that? Ahaz had an option. He, could have tr- he did trust in the king of Assyria. He said, you know what? I'm going to give you gold and I'm going to bow down to you and I'm going to trust that you'll be my ally. But if you read on in 20 years, you know what happens? Assyria is not such a friendly ally. It comes and completely wipes out and devastates Judah. And now Assyria reigns. And now Ahaz king, now he's not the throne of any nation because it belongs to Assyria. And so the thing that Ahaz trusted for his salvation is now the thing that has turned on him and the thing that is lording and ruling over his life. And we sit here and we say, ah, Ahaz, that dummy, how could he? But in reality, we're a lot more like Ahaz than we ever want to admit. There's things that we look to for our salvation, for our deliverance, for our rescue. And not only one, do they not deliver us and save us, but two, they lord over us, they rule over us. Just a few examples about pornography. Maybe we're down, our marriage is struggling, we need a pick-me-up, maybe we're uh, stressed, and so I'm just gonna look at this site, or I'm just gonna go here, or I'm just gonna engage in this relationship that's outside of the context of what God wants, and I'm hoping that maybe that will fill the void or the cracks or the needs that I have. How many years later, how many men and women's lives are shaped by addiction to something that they thought would make them feel good or bring them a feeling of peace. How many addicts in attempt to feel good um, or maybe to escape the moment or maybe to enjoy a moment of pleasure or just looking for a good time, temporary seek pleasure in the form of maybe drugs or alcohol, thinking that this is the answer, this is my escape, this will give me what I've been longing for, what I've been looking for, this will deliver me. Thinking this is the way out or this will give me the feeling that I've been longing for, or at least this will mask the pain, are now bound to something that they never imagined back at the start. You see, Ahaz, if he would have known that in 20 years Assyria would come and wipe him out, I guarantee you he would have never made the deal. But in that moment, he said, you know what, I'm gonna trust Assyria, which leads me to a point, can you go two slides over, I think, maybe, or one, I have a quote right there. It says, when we cannot trust God, it suddenly makes good sense to trust our worst enemy. That when we're not looking to the Lord for our salvation, for our deliverance, and for our rescue, then it very makes, to us, it makes rational sense to trust in anything else. The other quote says this, until a person is convinced of God's complete trustworthiness, they cannot lay aside the lust for their own security. What does that mean? It means that if you fail to trust God to be the solution, if you fail to trust him to be the foundation, the building block, the answer to the things and to the problems and to the needs of your life, then this saying says this, that you will spend the rest of your life trying to find it and to fill those voids and to fill those cracks and to trying to find a foundation and to find, trying to find a sense of peace to build your life upon. That if Christ isn't the building block, if he isn't the end all be all, if he isn't the alpha and the mega, if he isn't the one that you are seeking, to be your deliverer, to be your rescuer, to be the one to bring you peace, then it says you'll never be able to lay aside the lust to search for your own security, to find it, that you'll spend your life trying to fill it. And you're bound to find a solution, a meaning, a purpose, and you'll be tempted to fill it in any possible 
way. How many of us have been stricken with fear, doubt, and worry because we believe that the answer somehow lies within, that it is our job, our responsibility, that it must fall on us? Because the reality is it has nothing to do with God's inability or God's weakness or that he is not able. It has everything to do with where we have placed our trust. I would argue that we're no better than Ahaz that daily we make choices to trust into something else and to believe in something else, to think that something else will save us and rescue us and deliver us. And I would also argue that God shows up daily and is saying, you know what, give this to me. This is mine. I am able. Put your trust in me and I will be your salvation. But just like Ahaz, we say, you know what, I've made up my mind. This is what I am doing. And so Ahaz had a test He had a test of what he was going to do, who he was going to trust, and God was even willing to give him a sign if he had the faith to believe. And Ahaz was in a situation that was over his head, that he couldn't do anything about it, that he was looking for a deliverer, a rescuer, and they had to go to another king in order to give it. How many of us in life, things can get over our head? They can be out of hand. They can be overwhelming. I don't know about you, but I have situations where one of the worst feelings to feel is that you're powerless over something that's going on, that you're helpless, and then all you have to do is sit back and watch and trust. But how many of us, things get beyond our control? Sin becomes unmanageable, exhausting. We're trying to cover it and excuse it and hide it and to keep it under wraps. We ever prayed those prayers of desperation? Lord, just give me a sign. Lord, just show me a way out. Lord, will you please just give me something? and save me from that situation. And so it really asks the question, what is our sign? You know, Ahaz had the opportunity to ask for a sign. I'm here, what's my sign? What's our sign? And if we continue on in Isaiah 7, I think that we see our sign. We'll go back to read verse 10 again. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Come on now. Ahaz wasn't even looking for a sign. Ahaz rejected the sign. And the Lord says this, you know what? I will still give you a sign. And the sign is this. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Where do we see that? We see that in Matthew chapter 1 when the angel appears to Mary and is telling him that she will give birth to a child. Matthew concludes the chapter with this. It says, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Ahaz had his chance for a sign, and God showed up to him, but guess what? We have a sign, and that sign is Christmas, and that's why we celebrate. It's the birth of our Savior into our need, into our darkness, that he was born in a lowly manger, that the God came, became incarnate and dwelt with us. That's our sign. That God is with us. 700 years before Jesus was born, God says, you know what? I'm going to show my commitment and my faithfulness to my people, and I'm going to send them a sign, a deliverer, a rescuer, a savior. 
And Jesus was born into that, into our need, into our situations, into our darkness to be a sign for us. And 2,000 years later, it still speaks as our salvation, as our rescue, as our deliverer. And it's the message in which it begs the question of where do we place our trust? I could preach a whole sermon on just that portion where it says that and we will, they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Because that right there has been said that the greatest thing that you could ever experience here on this earth is that, is God dwelling with you. What did we sing this morning? Better is one day in his house than a thousand elsewhere. Many times in life we accuse God of being far off or being distant or being removed from our situations and we're like, where is he, God? What you, what's going on? Where are you? But this verse here tells us, where is he? He is God with us, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so the one thing that we can't accuse God of or the one thing that we can't hold him to is that he's distant or removed or he just doesn't care about our situation because in our greatest need, in our alienation from him and in our sin, he entered in and he came to be our rescuer, our deliverer, and our savior. And so the same question that was asked of Ahaz of who will you trust for your salvation? Will you trust the words of God despite what you might see, despite what you might be tempted to do, despite what you might think is the best logical decision in your way out of this? We trust the Lord to be your salvation and your deliverer. Romans 5.8 tells us this, that not only is he a God that is for us, or with us, but that he's a God for us. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. So he didn't wait and say, you know what, well, Ahaz seems like he's going to get it together, and you know what, Ahaz finally got his stuff together, Ahaz... Ahaz has repented and he has turned from his sin, so you know what? Now I'm going to send the sign. Or he doesn't say, you know what? Ahaz, and I see it in five years. Five years, he'll turn it around and he's going to make things right. Um, so, you know, because of that, then I will give you a sign. It says, while well, Ahaz had rejected God, while well, he had turned down God, while well, he had turned away from God, and he had trusted in something completely different for his salvation, he gave the sign. And while I was yet a sinner, while I was yet far off, while yet I had not a thought or care about God, it says that he died for me while I was a sinner. It doesn't say, well, you know, Ryan started to make some good decisions and he started to go to church more, so then Christ said, you know what, I'll go to the cross. No, it was while I was yet broken. It was while I was yet far off. It was while yet I was still actively sinning against him. He said, you know what, I'm gonna demonstrate my love this way. I'm gonna go to the cross for their sins and their needs. And he enters in to that and that should cause every heart to rejoice and every heart to worship why because the savior lives right we sang that again this morning our redeemer lives and the one that has come to meet our needs and the one that has come to be our savior is living and active and the cross still speaks as a sign and so the moment that you want to see a sign and you want to know does God care is God really paying attention you know does God have any idea what I'm going through the cross speaks something different let it remind you that God has entered into our world and our brokenness and that it is still able to save. Last point is this. 
I love that God was faithful to his word and faithful to deliver and faithful to rescue. Because how many of you have had people in your lives where you've extended grace a certain amount of times? You know, they've, they've tried your patience, they've tested your patience, and you know, you've given them chance after chance after chance. Maybe you've given them money after money after money, or maybe you've bailed them out time after time after time, and you're just ready to write them off and to say, you know what, I'm done with you. You've abused your last chance, you know? That's enough. I'm not going to be walked over anymore. I love it that even though Israel has failed and they've walked away from God time after time after time, God says, I'm going to send you a sign and the virgin will give birth to a son. What does that mean? It means that even though Assyria would come and rule and reign and they would take over Israel, it meant even though Ahaz would walk away and that he would choose against God, that God was faithful to his word and that no plan of God was going to be thwarted by mere human means. I love that. Because some of us need the reminder that maybe we have been in bondage to sin. Maybe we have walked away or maybe we are struggling with sin and maybe we're of the mindset that's, you know what? God is gonna be done with me or I just blew it. That was my last chance with God. God must be mad or God must be angry. He must be upset because he gave me 20 chances and I blew them all. But the message of Christmas is this, is that God's plan is not gonna be thwarted. It wasn't thwarted by Assyria. It wasn't thwarted by Ahaz's disobedience. He says, I'm gonna send a sign and I'm gonna send my son to be birthed into their need despite of what's going on. And so some of us need to trust that, that the plans of God will come to fruition in your life. That God's plans for you are not going to be thwarted by your own folly and by your own indecision or by any attack of the enemy or anyone else, is that God sees his plans through. Luke 15 tells us that he's the shepherd that leaves the 99 to chase down the one. And that he's a God that's not only with us, but he's for us, and that he fights for us, and he leaves the 99 so that he can go rescue the one, that he's a God of salvation, that he's a God of rescue, that he's a God that delivers Martin Luther preached a sermon 500 years ago on Christmas and he said that the birth of Christ is not just a reason to rejoice or a moment of casual interest. It's not just something to celebrate and say, woo, Christmas, Jesus was born. It's a moment of decision and it's a moment of faith. And it's calling out to you, and Christmas is calling out to you, is where will you place your faith? Where will you place your trust? What will you look to for your salvation? What will you look to build your life upon? Is it the gospel of Jesus Christ that has come to rescue and to save you and to deliver you? Luther, in the same sermon, said this, and if you do, and if you place your faith and your trust in him, then you can look at sin and laugh because you know that the Savior has been born and that sin has been defeated and you can rejoice this Christmas because you have been delivered and rescued. So I don't know where you all are this morning with that, but I want to conclude with three options. Maybe you never have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be your salvation, and maybe you're living in darkness, and maybe you're stuck in bondage and addiction and darkness, and you just feel overwhelmed, and you just don't know what to do. And you've tried everything on the map to try to get yourself out of that darkness and you just haven't been delivered. Today, 
Let Christmas be your salvation. Let it be the thing that rescues you. Let Christ be the one. Invite him into your situation. Stop wrestling. Stop trying to figure it out on your own. Stop trying to solve it in your own power and saying, I'm helpless against this, Lord. I don't deserve this, but I'm placing my faith and trust that you were born into this situation to save me from this. And trust Jesus as your Savior today. Secondly, maybe you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ but you've been stuck in some type of sin or some type of addiction that's been lording over you for far too long. Maybe it's gambling, maybe it's pornography, maybe it's fear. Let today be the day that you're rescued and you're saved from that. Put your trust in Jesus. Stand upon his word and his truth and be saved today and be set free and be filled with hope this Christmas because your savior and your redeemer lives. And maybe that's none of us and maybe... We have been saved and we are set free. And if that's you, then rejoice. And rejoice loudly and declare the message of Christmas to your peers, to your coworkers, to your family this season. That Christmas is more than just gathering together of families. It's more than just giving of gifts. It's more than just decorations. It's more than just Hallmark movies. It's about Jesus entering into our greatest need and saving us from the darkness. It's about the light entering in 